0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. My guest this week is one of the most influential American authors of the last 30 years, Brett Easton Ellis' career began chronicling the lives of rich young college students returning languorously to their hometown of Los Angeles. In 1991, his controversial novel American Psycho made him a global success, but it also produced accusations from feminists of misogyny. It became a play and a film, and it established that there was nothing off-limits for Brett Easton Ellis, an approach that's followed him through four more novels, movie scripts, his own podcast, and a combative presence on social media. This year, for the first time, he's turned to nonfiction with White, a series of essays that reflect on his own youth, and on the gulf that separates his generation, he's now 55, from that of a younger partner. But White is also a witty howl of rage, a kind of manifesto against what he sees as the many curses of millennial culture. So we're asking Brett Easton do woke millennials need a wake-up call? Brett, welcome.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So have we met? around 10 years ago, not yes. quite 10 years ago, when yeah. Imperial Bedrooms came out. And that revisited the generation from less than zero, the it generation did. that you've described as sort of anomie. And they were hedonistic, but they never seemed to get much pleasure from the hedonism, if you know what I mean. Right. Something has changed in the culture, you seem to be saying in this book. What is it?
0: Well, look, the culture changes because the generations change. And Part of what's happened that we've all began to notice is that Generation X is a very, very small generation that is kind of smashed in between these two massive populaces, the boomer generation. I guess that's what we call them in the States and millennials, which are a massive generation, too. And I think what you see happening is that each generation successively starts to decide what the discourse is in the culture. And so just by the very nature of how things happen, we have seen a more aspirational generation at play, one that believes in utopia, one believes in a kind of passive-aggressive positivity, one that believes almost in a kind of puritanism, One that is not as interested in sex, one that is definitely not interested in the way Generation X explored themes of alienation and violence. And I find it remarkable right now that uh, in the United States, we have millennials writing essays about films made by Generation X and are completely appalled and shocked by them. There was a piece by a young millennial about Heathers, the black comedy from 1989 starring Winona Ryder and Christian Slater. And this millennial was absolutely appalled. Couldn't believe this movie was ever made. It triggered him. It triggered him.
1: Tr- triggers just get you going, doesn't it? Uh,
0: no, I'm, I've never been triggered. I've never been triggered by anything because triggered suggests offended, and I'm not offended by art. I'm not offended by a movie or a rap song or a novel. Never happened to me. So that is what's different between my generation and the millennial generation. They are offended by opinions and they're offended by art. They want tweets taken down. They want statues taken down. They don't want paintings put up, certain movies. It's the cancel
1: culture. It's the the cancel culture. We
0: were not part of the cancel culture.
1: Right. Well, So let's take this uh, step by step. There's quite a lot in there. If you had this overall accusation is cancel culture, generation wuss, you call it, oversensitive a bit preening passive-aggressive positivity. I'm going to start with passive-aggressive positivity because there's a nice paradox. What's passive-aggressive about being positive?
0: Um, Well, if someone pricks a hole in your positivity, if someone maybe shines a little light of reality that that's not going to happen, that there isn't that utopia available, I have never seen a generation twist their head around and snap at you so snarlingly Ever. I haven't seen that in my generation. I never saw that in any members of my my parents' generation. But that's what I mean by this passive-aggressive positivity. It's the whole super...
1: generation can't all be doing the oh, same of thing. Oh, of
0: course not. It's all – look, of course there are generalities there and it is humorous. It's not a deep dive into the millennial generation.
1: But what is it you think has changed? Now, very easy to point a finger at social media. Of course, number one. Is that one. the vector or is that – more than that? Is it a shaping influence?
0: I think it is, number one. But there are societal and cultural things that happen to this generation that aren't necessarily tied into social media. I think that the election of Obama encouraged a kind of identity politics that riled people up. I think it also encouraged victim culture, which also uh, has really strongly affected millennial generation. They often see victims as heroes, and that's something that's very different from my generation. Victimization is something to be admired and something to extol in a way that seems uh, kind of... uh, sadistic in a way. But I, I do think it's that. And I do think that they grew up under two wars. And I do think they grew up under economic hardship. And they many of them have student debt. Many of them have been medicated from a very young age. And they also are growing up under a president that they loathe. So all of these things manage to build the millennial identity. And a lot of those things don't have anything to do with social media. But social media, I think, exacerbates it.
1: Might it not be, though, that... The things that are irritating you are just belated responses to things that probably should have been as one might say in the present jargon, called out long ago. So in a way, you're getting it all at once, and a particular generation if we're thinking of this loosely as midlifers and millennials in an, uh, an awkward coexistence, and I think there's some truth in that. Yes. But that actually, when you're saying they are lionising victimhood, well, they're actually just pointing out that for a lot of time, women didn't have it so good in the workplace, or they had to put up with too many men sort of handling them the way that they, they wanted to, or that indeed ethnic minorities, or indeed often very large, uh, large Large groups of society, as it happens in, in black America, were not treated properly. What's wrong with them shining the light there?
0: There's a limit, and there's an overreaction. I grew up in a very strong matriarchal household. My The, the men had checked out. Men weren't around. My dad wasn't around. My grandfather wasn't around. It was my mother, my aunts, my grandmothers, my uh, nieces, my sisters. And uh, they were somewhat dependent on men financially, and none of them are now at all well off. But... None of them ever saw themselves as victims of the patriarchy. They never saw themselves as victims of men. They never painted themselves that way. And I think I had this notion of females as being really strong based on my upbringing. And also some of my favorite writers from Joan Didion to Paul and Kale, also rejected being victims of the male patriarchy. I think you can either buy into that and believe in it and then play a role in it or you can completely reject it and say, well, yeah, I'm living under a patriarchal society, but I'm certainly not going to be a victim of it.
1: But why do you have to accept that you're living in a patriarchal society?
0: You don't have to accept it. No one in my family, none of the women in my family accepted that. And they liked men. They liked men. You get the sense now that – Men are not to be trusted. They're not to be liked. We've got to cage them up. We've got to give them a set of rules on how to behave. I understand completely what you're saying. There is an overreach and there is a point where, okay, we get it and now we're going four miles ahead of schedule and where are we ending up now? I think in a place where a lot of people are unhappy. I don't know anyone who agrees with where Me Too has ended up. No women, no men, nobody. It overreached. And that was a strong movement. That was a movement that was very important. And it messed itself up by overreaching.
1: Let's put a word in for the other side of the argument as we do on the show. But it's not by a long chalk over yet. Maybe that more people are finding – no, you look skeptically at me. You think Me Too is over?
0: I would like to let you finish.
1: No, How I, 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 I like the look. i, I, I,
0: I to explore the look. <laughs> I, I think it ended. It ended in 2018, and it certainly ended for my boyfriend, at least, who is a radical leftist, socialist, Democrat, millennial. When uh, Joe Biden briefly was pushed under the Me Too umbrella by the mainstream media, the only person who might be able to beat Donald Trump was treated as a kind of pariah for two or three days in the mainstream media as someone who should be connected to. Men who actually committed sexual assault, this reminded my boyfriend of what happened to Al Franken in the Senate, which drove him absolutely mad, and that the fact that Obama had to even come on television and give a speech warning everybody about overreach, warning everybody about that circular firing squad, where yes, you nobly go after one target, but maybe the next target is not what you want to go after, and then you just start circling everybody and everybody gets shot down and then the movement's done.
1: So just to be clear, do you believe that Me Too is really over?
0: I don't know anybody who believes in what Me Too has ended up being. I, many people believe it has become weaponized, politicized, and what it started out as was something that was the gateway to equal pay, to systematically
1: not only pay.
0: No, but to dis but to, at first to systematically get rid of this hierarchy, this patriarchal hierarchy in Hollywood that was filled with a kind of low level and high level harassment. Get rid of that and then start opening the doors where there was more equality in Hollywood. And that was great. And then I don't know. Now we're just in, you know, my boyfriend grabbed my wrist three years ago. Let's cancel him. That's not progressive.
1: Joe Biden in the news, as it happens, the, the week that we're interviewing you in, in London, he has obviously been under huge pressure there to sort of explain away or try to explain away uh, some of his behaviors. Now, you're laughing about I that. and was absurd. But, well, we don't really know, do we? Because we weren't there for most of what is being described. But the point being—
0: You that, mean swimming naked in front of assistants. He likes to do that. Like he likes to like swim in lakes or something. Is that what we're talking about? Like disrobing? The in front point of? is
1: that if he's serious about this candidacy and, yeah. you know, your boyfriend, as you say, is a, is a Democrat. Democratic yeah, but he Democratic doesn't want abortion.
0: Joe Biden to win. But anyway. But
1: Democratic world is interested in this. is exercised by it. It's probably being weaponized a bit on both sides, right? So he has to go on television and explain in a way his behavior. You can see he can't quite work out what he's alleged to have done wrong.
0: I love liberals. I love them. This is hilarious. Where they have ended up is why I've moved away from it. This ridiculous behavior that he – the apology tour – The apology tour of every Democrat who's running for president is a riot. They are apologizing for simply everything, for having a pet pig, for sniffing a woman's hair. I mean for putting black men in jail, according to Kamala Harris. I don't know how much longer they're going to keep apologizing before they kind of get the message and realize Donald Trump doesn't apologize for anything and people respond to that. I wish the Democrats would stop apologizing pull up their big boy bands and kick Donald Trump in the ass. But they're not doing that. And to see poor Joe Biden make that videotape where he goes, I get it. I was wrong. I was wrong. Wrong about what? I'm more bothered by seeing a series of women tearfully go on mainstream television in America. And it was very upsetting. He was standing right behind me and he was touching my shoulders. Literally, the women in my family would go, are you effing kidding me?
1: But some women did feel that that was wrong. Oh, right? well,
0: some women do, of course.
1: Right. And they weren't all generation wolves either. You're very concerned with the reaction to Donald Trump, someone you've also dealt with in, in fiction, as it? it turns out in, in American Psyche, you were ahead of the curve there, weren't you?
0: I didn't know it. <laughs>
1: So what was your – and there you are. And you knew this hard-edged world of New York and you channeled it, uh, admittedly, through a a psychopath. But but it was also about the culture and the money-making culture and the veneration of a sort of bling generation. So when Donald Trump gets elected, you're concerned with the way people have reacted since. But what was your own reaction?
0: Not complete shock. One of the things that I write about in white is that I became – Interested in politics suddenly because of the 2016 election. I never had been interested in it all. Like the overwhelming majority of Americans, I don't vote and I have no issues with that. I also – you can't complain about who's president if you don't vote and I don't. Just simply not interested, think American politics are absurd, the president, whatever, the vice president. The way this campaign was being covered by the media began to fascinate me because what was happening on the ground was not being – written about in the mainstream media that I always trusted my whole life. In America, the New York Times or CNN, those are two institutions from the time I was a teenager until recently I trusted. And I saw there was a shifting reality, that there was a different narrative being built about the campaign that didn't seem to be the truth if you were following it on so many other outlets online, independent outlets, conservative outlets. And I thought, What's happening? And I became invested in the campaign.
1: Do you think that what your own reaction, you said, I wasn't surprised. You didn't say whether you were, I wasn't Uh, surprised as in actually, huh, I saw this coming. I told you so. Or I can see this is going to be very difficult. Or indeed, did you find any way distressing?
0: I found the whole campaign distressing. The entire campaign was distressing. It divided America. It almost divided my household, even because my boyfriend saw me as an apathetic Gen Xer who just didn't care. And then afterwards... But you uh,
1: kind of said that was true because you do not want Oh, vote. it is true. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, no, it's, it's true. But he knew that about me, and then suddenly something was activated. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That evening that it happened, I tweeted something. I tweeted, Patrick Bateman somewhere is smiling about this. And then you could just feel there was this negativity, this wave of shock and fear fear that I just didn't want to be part of the conversation. So I deleted the tweet and I went into the bedroom where my boyfriend had decided to relapse into drug addiction that night by taking some opiates that he had hidden. He'd been over it for about a year and the election of Donald Trump triggered him back into a mild opiate addiction that it took a long time for him to fight. There was a part of me that was kind of gleeful because he had become, because of the mainstream media, the biggest underdog in American political history. He had a wave of negativity over him.
1: But it, it what it doesn't deal with, it weights things perhaps in a direction that doesn't look at the uglier side of what's in front of you. And that is the way that Donald Trump has spoken about minorities, the way he's spoken about women, the stirring up of, of divisions that may already exist in the society, but a, a sense that he is always kind of weighting the scale against not just outright political enemies, but some groups in the society. Immigrants, Muslims, time to time, women, you know, you name it. Why does that not distress you a bit more? I
0: disagree with that. I don't think he does that. I don't know really. What, what has he said about women except to grab them by the pussy line on the bus? What has he said so negatively about women?
1: Well, it's pretty negative, isn't
0: it? A hot mic bragging to Billy Bush on a bus, whatever, how many years ago? That's just locker talk. And I know women. Well,
1: the, the anti-Hillary uh, Clinton rhetoric, the, the locker up kind of
0: rhetoric. It's funny. Was, Hilarious. Is, is it? I think it's funny. And it's just humor. You can't take it that seriously. If you start taking Locker up that seriously, then you've lost. You're like, if you're looking at that and you're morally offended and going, how dare his crowd see Locker up, then we're out of American life into some other utopia society where that doesn't exist. And I just can't get on board with that. And you also have to remember, the women I knew who voted for Trump and the women I know who voted for Clinton, neither one of them gave a damn about the grab by the pussy thing. None of them did. Most of them said... I grew up with three older brothers. You think that's going to decide why I don't or do vote for Donald Trump? That's been blown up all out of proportion, as has the racist stuff about the Mexicans are all rapists and everything. It's all been blown up of proportion by the left. But that's not and something to not say true. that
1: Mexicans are all rapists. It's not something one says you didn't by didn't even accident. say that. It's not a, well, yeah, exactly. let's, I mean, let's the But the, the, the description or, as being, of a group of immigrants has been particularly prone to criminality. It's not something you say by accident as a politician. This guy's a, no, an that's experienced true. message maker. That's
0: true. And he is. And that's his message. Message. Look, I didn't vote for him. I'm not voting. I'm not agreeing with his policies. I don't agree with a Muslim ban. I have a problem with the trans ban of the military as well. I am not a Donald Trump supporter, but neither am I in the fantasy world of the left rewriting Donald Trump as this orange Hitler. And we're living in Weimar, Germany, and everything is like The Handmaid's Tale and women have it so terribly in the United States where they have it better than anywhere else in the world. This progressive nihilism, this liberal nihilism that's destroying that party is part of why I wanted to write white. It's actually a side I used to be on. It's actually a side I used to sympathize with. And I can't believe this illiberalism is sweeping the party and and there is now this fracturing. And I wonder how it's going to be mended. I want my boyfriend to be happy in November. I want Todd to be happy. I don't care. I've got no skin in this game. I have no skin if Donald Trump was. I want Todd to win. Now, I don't think I want does a social the Democrat fight
1: back and say, "Oh
0: my God!"
1: Hang on a minute. How do you feel, by the way, about being the, the the foil, the foil for the kind of generation wuss, democratic dystopia here? Does he ever say, you know, you've gone too far?
0: I talk about Todd a lot on my podcast, and he has read this. He read it before it was published. He at first thought it was a little... I want
1: to get Todd on. I think we need Todd on the show. He
0: thought that at first it was a little exaggerated, and then he realized when we talked about it, it wasn't exaggerated. If there was anything in it that he didn't like, I would take out. He didn't ask me to take out anything.
1: It was interesting. Your old friend and another writer of a similar generation, Jay McInerney, said, I can't quite understand where Brett Easton Ellis has ended up. I'm paraphrasing. But he said something like, given that he's a card-carrying member of the coastal liberal... Elites. So it obviously has also divided a certain group of, of writers who had their different ways of writing books, but whose outlook was deemed to be quite similar.
0: Jay said a lot of this stuff before I had him on my podcast in January, and he's invited me to dinner many times and we still talk. He locates what's been happening with me, he thinks, goes back to 1990. Nineteen ninety-one, with the cancellation of American Psycho and myself, and that there was something that happened to me in that moment that kind of politicized me to move toward this side of the aisle. And he's been saying that
1: cancellation. Lot. You mean criticism?
0: The cancellation of the book by a corporation. The cancellation of me by the media, and the cancellation of all of my publishers across Europe. There was really no one there and I was flailing in the wind and hundreds of death threats. Jay believes that that was when I became somewhat politicized and moved over to the side of the aisle, I guess, and became a kind of free speech advocate. I believe in all speech. I believe that if we have Westboro Baptist Church, then we have to have anything allowed on Twitter. And once we open the door to who starts deciding what is hate speech – and what is not, then we are in a very, very tricky moment. And we are in one on social media. We certainly are on Facebook and we are on Twitter and various other places. So I think that's what Jay – I think Jay and I are always going to be friends. And and we actually do agree on a lot of stuff. But he does think that I've gone a little overboard on this side.
1: And it does mean that in, in this – and I think you describe it in a very lively way, this sort of cancel culture on Twitter or putting people effectively on kind of band lists. them shame, yeah, lists shame. of shame. But it is a position taken on a particular part of the American right, and I'm thinking, I mean, how comfortable do you feel, say, in the company of Jordan Peterson?
0: I don't know. I I sometimes think Jordan Peterson is intellectually my superior uh, on a certain level. I guess I'm, I'm I haven't bought Jordan Peterson's books. Sometimes I watch him on YouTube. Sometimes he's compelling. Sometimes I'm a little bored by him. But I understand. I have young millennial friends who. Love him and go to his talks and buy his book and are really into me. He spoke to people about something. He connected to them about something and it was that weird thing that happened to him where he wouldn't use you the could pronoun You say the same. If, OK,
1: what about Steve Bannon?
0: Very compelling person, extremely compelling. I don't think I would necessarily agree with half of what he says, but that's part of life. I mean I find many people compelling who I don't agree with. I find Stephen Miller compelling. And he might be a bad dude. I don't know. But when I see him go after the press and go after the media, it's kind of a thrill. I'm not sure I want to <laughs> find out about the secret meetings where he's creating his plans, but I've, I, I, look, I've, I've found Patrick Bateman compelling. I find dark people compelling. And I don't look at life as this aspirational world, all full of people who are loving each other and everything. Life is more complicated. than that. Life is Steve Bannon. Life is Stephen Miller.
1: So let's see where you might want to give the poor old millennials the benefit of the doubt. If indeed you do, I do. You do. What do. do you like about them, by the way?
0: Um, Apart
1: from the boyfriend.
0: Um. Oh, gee, you just put me on the spot. What do I like about them? Uh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's a hard one. What do I like about them? Um. Uh, we can ooh. give you time. I think you should just run this dead air. I mean, I think you should just run this as is. I mean, I don't know. But anyway, um, next question, please.
1: You've criticized millennials. I, I, I was a, They're enjoy. cute.
0: They're cute. I was going
1: to say, we're yeah, you, still thinking about why you like millennials. We should let you answer.
0: Well, look, there is a side of me that does like their youthful optimism. I do like that. I think it's overreaches, as I've said before, but I do like that. And, I, and one of the things that I do like about my partner is that despite his anxiety, his neediness, uh, his um, bouts of shame, his bounce back time is pretty high. And I like that. And that is actually a sign of youth, I think, to a degree. So that's one thing. And I do like some of the art that's made by millennial. I definitely loved Girls by Lena Dunham. And I love the TV series Atlanta that Mr. Glover uh, creates. And so there is millennial art that I, I respond to.
1: I think you said they didn't read books, which – it's not quite true is it? if you look at, uh, no. at uh, the data in as much as we can uh, get into how much people finish the books in the data of Pew Research says that yes. 18, 29 year olds most likely aged to have read a book do you owe reading millennials an, apo- an apology I tour? I
0: suppose I do here and you know I do. you do an interview with the Times and it's two hours it's in your apartment and about 30 seconds of it is where you talk about reading habits and what's happened to books and why are people reading novels and none of the millennial, millennials millennials I know they are reading novels. None of them are reading novels. Millennials don't read novels. And then we go into another hour and 58 minutes of stuff. And somehow that's the headline in the Sunday Times. And of course, it caused an ocean, an ocean of millennials to attack me on Twitter, going, Mr. Ellis, how dare you say that? I read a crate of novels a year. And then I have a librarian going, Mr. Ellis, I'm a librarian in Chelsea Dam. I have millennials marching in here all the time (laughs) checking out novels. And so great. Great. British millennials read novels. I'm happy to hear that. I still don't know a goddamn millennial in L.A. who reads a book. So, you know, whatever. That's coming from my my perspective. But I apologize to all British millennials. You you like it? You're now?
1: (laughs) That's a Brady Snellis brief apology to a last thought. I followed your characters from the get-go, the ones in the novels, not uh, not so much you, you and the boyfriend who we've just got to know in white. What would be different for Clay and Trent and his crew now? I imagine, like you, they're in the prime of midlife. They would probably have been in and out of rehab a a few times. How would they be faring in the battle between midlifers and millennials?
0: Interesting, because I often think about Clay, because um, more so than the other characters of that book. The last time we saw Clay was in a very dark place in imperial bedrooms, but he kind of survived it because his generation had economic advantages that millennials simply don't. So, you know, I think he'd be okay, maybe as displaced and unhappy as he's always been. But I think... He'd
1: be failing all the Me Too tests and so would everyone else pretty much in the
0: book. Oh, beyond Me Too. I mean, (laughs) he'd be... be, But he'd also have enough money for lawyers and people to get him out of scrapes and stuff. I do think that the one thing that my uh, partner talks about a lot and many millennials talk about is economic disadvantage compared to my generation and that that is a real problem. And that causes... The causation of economic disadvantage is really at the root of a lot of the stress, anxiety and unhappiness of that generation. I'm very sympathetic to that. That is true. But I don't think they can necessarily blame us. Actually they don't blame us. They blame boomers. They don't blame my generation. They blame my parents' generation for all of the mistakes and all of the screw ups they made. And I don't know. It's also my boyfriend is very into young politicians but he also believes that we're still in the system where … It's still going to be older white guys who are going to be controlling the strings, at least for a little while, and that that discourages him.
1: Brett Easton Ellis, thanks very much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And I'm sure you'll let us know. Has Brett nailed the spirit of the age or has he got millennials all wrong? That's it from this week's Economist Asks. Don't forget to subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer and get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. And while you're with us, do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist.